again. All right. So, hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast Against Disease, brought to you by Humanity Against Disease. Um, we are your hosts. Uh, I am Cody Weston. I'm Kavita Chapla. And we are here today to tell you about how bad some things are. And then you can decide whether to be stressed out about it and change nothing, or whether to make some positive lifestyle changes so that you can live longer and enjoy life uh, more thoroughly. And die less. Mm-hmm. We're very much in favor of that. <laughs> so this is a little bit different than the last way, or the way we did things last time. Um, this time we're going to be doing a two-parter. The first part is how bad is diet pop or diet soda, if you're from one of these uncultured parts that doesn't believe in the word pop. (laughs) Pop is a type of music or a loud sound. Or a carbonated beverage that brings warmth to the soul and, as you'll find out, apparently kills you just a little bit. (laughs) Um, And the the other topic is going to be sitting. Dun-dun-dun! So if you are listening to this, sitting down and drinking a Diet Pop, then God help you. And there's going to be plenty of uh, delicious smack talk going around, so this is definitely something you should listen to. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So uh, getting into how bad is Diet Pop, um, there's a lot that goes into this, and I tried to break this down um, into a couple of different subtopics. The first thing that uh, came up was this idea that aspartame and other artificial sweeteners cause cancer. Um, And that's something that's been floating around in the pop culture since like the dawn of artificial sweeteners. And um, what we will get into uh, in a little bit is that uh, the evidence for that is not quite as strong as you might think. Um, but what does become an interesting story is how uh, artificial sweeteners affect the body's uh, metabolism and can impact uh, diseases like diabetes, uh, obesity, and what we call the metabolic syndrome, which is um, those and uh, also high blood pressure, uh, other forms of heart disease, and these things. But I wanted to start out by telling you a little bit about the history of artificial sweeteners. So fun. Yep. So, um, I love the way this paper starts off. Uh, This is a symposium paper uh, put out in 2010 by someone called Ching Yang uh, at Yale. And they say, we owe the discovery of several artificial sweeteners to a few brave scientists who violated the code of laboratory hygiene and tasted their samples, often (laughs) inadvertently. (laughs) Well, washing your hands is time consuming. And, <laughs> you know. This is also similar to the story of how we found out about LSD. <laughs> to be continued for another day. <laughs> yeah. But um, the, the first significant artificial sweetener was saccharin. Um, and that was actually found in 1879 at Johns Hopkins, Ooh. where we are. And uh, the guy was called Constantine Falberg. He was looking at different coal tar derivatives, and um, he found that it tasted good. So he's like, hey, what the heck, let's just start putting this coal tar in stuff. What's interesting, I thought, is that um, it was out for a long time before it really caught on. Saccharin was used uh, just for diabetics 
And what started to lead to it becoming more of a popular product was that sugar was uh, scarce during World War II. And around the same time, uh, people decided that thin women were better looking. So uh, there was more of an emphasis on diet and um, this whole thin is in thing. And this has uh, led to things going from uh, artificial sweeteners being for people who must limit sugar intake to people who want to limit sugar intake. And saccharin was the only show in town for a little while. So wait, it was made from coal tar, like coal, like the lumps that yes. you get during Christmas time? Exactly. Wow. That's, a miracle know, of the oil age. Strange. Yeah. And that's why it's... Uh, it's probably where the, this whole cancer connection really came okay. from, is people were like, coal tar, that sounds dangerous. Okay, got it. And meanwhile, they're like taking drags off of cigarettes and not <laughs> feeling too bad about it. But <laughs> that's a story for another day. Um, and the next one to come along was um, in 1937, it was called Cyclamate. Uh, and this guy called Michael Sveda at the University of Illinois um, found that, and they were blending it with saccharin to make it taste better. Uh, and the FDA said everything was fine back in 1958. Um, and then in 1969, the cyclamate was banned because of its carcinogenic potentials. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, and then it uh, intended to ban saccharin in 77, but uh, everyone flipped out, and um, Congress said, yeah, don't do that. Everyone wanted their saccharin? Everyone wanted to be thin? Yep. And they just put a warning label on it, and people carried out their business and continued to um, <laughs> be unhealthy. Um, okay. So next, the um, saccharin was on the market for quite some time, and um, the... Uh, link to bladder cancer was actually found to only be found in rodents in later studies, and actually some of these warning labels have come off. And remember, this is just saccharin, which is actually pretty hard to find anymore. Okay. Um, and then the the next generation of sweeteners came along much later. In 1965, we got uh, aspartame, which was designed by a guy called James Schlatter, uh, at a company called Searle that was later bought out by um, Monsanto, no. everyone's favorite evil corporation. <laughs> and that became NutraSweet. Um, this is unique. So most of the artificial sweeteners aren't actually digested at all, and they just pass through the system and um, go um, probably into the, the gigantic plastic pile in the middle of the ocean or something. Oh, no. Um, but aspartame is actually broken down. It's made out of um, two amino acids, phenylalanine and aspartate. Uh -huh. um, so you drink this stuff, and then it's broken down, and it's amino acids, which do have some caloric value, but it's just so little compared to the sweetness that it basically doesn't register. So the next artificial sweetener to come along was acesulfame potassium, um, and that... Uh, was designed by someone called Carl Klaus at Hext, um, which I guess is a company. And he found this in 1967. And <laughs> the most recent uh, significant advance that uh, most of you should be familiar with, uh, I imagine, is 
um, Sucralose, or Splenda, which came along in 1979 and was designed by not a white-sounding guy, uh, Shashikant Fadness. Um, so we got a little bit of diversity in the um, artificial sweetener game. Um, and I apologize, I don't actually know if that's a man's or a woman's name. I think it's a man. Okay. Sounds very South Asian. Well, at least we're, we're getting some, some different perspectives <laughs> on the matter. Um, so this presumptive dude was a graduate student working for a company called Tate and Lyle. Um, it was synthesized from sugar um, by substituting chlorine for some of the, the groups in there, and it made it 600 times sweeter. Whoa. And that's become like the beast of artificial sweeteners. Um, and yeah, in the, the last decade, or what they're calling the last decade in 2010, so the last 18 or so years, um, it's been moving in a positive uh, direction in terms of, um, I guess positive direction is the wrong word, and I'll edit this <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Um, but it's been, there's been a massive explosion of uh, artificial sweeteners in food products. Um, 6,000 products were launched between 1999 and 2004, for example. Wow. And it's just everywhere. It's even in baby food, and like Pedialyte. What? It's in uh, frozen food. Um, pretty can have sugar. Yeah. But pretty much uh, everybody's exposed to this stuff in America at this point. I have a question for you, Cody. Yep. When you were reading about the history of um, artificial sweeteners, did you get the sense that these advances that were happening in labs were motivated by um, people's desire to find something that would be an alternative to sugar to benefit health, or was it more like a money-making scheme? Like, how can we reinvent this and put a new product on the market? I wasn't able to get a clear sense of that from the reading I did. Okay. Um, I am going to give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I really do think that um, the idea of a magic bullet uh, for obesity mm -hmm. is something that would be good for public health. So mm -hmm. I suspect that at least some of these people were motivated by um, pure intentions. Okay. And, I mean, think of all the, the fame. Like, these are all household names right now, right? Yeah, to be the guy who invented Splenda? Like, that's crazy. Shout out to Shasha Khan Fadness. All right. Um, so that's kind of the history. They've all uh, come along, and it's interesting that um, as or the more they've or the more artificial sweeteners that have come along, the worse the obesity epidemic has gotten. And one of the core questions right now is: um, Are they contributing to um, the obesity epidemic, or are we just coming up with more and more because we're like, oh shit, everyone's getting fat. We better do something <laughs> about this. Um, or is it a combination of both? Um, or is it because of sitting? Stay tuned. Mm, probably a little bit of everything. <laughs> um, so get on your treadmill desks, kids, because uh, we're going to find out what's <laughs> up with all this. All right. So one thing I wanted to try to dispel is this whole aspartame causes cancer um, business. So as you heard, saccharin was derived from coal tar, and that's probably bad news, but even the evidence for that is a little bit limited. Uh, and I looked at a couple of review articles. The first uh, that I want to talk about is a uh, 2012 study by Schoenhammer and colleagues, and um, 
that did find that there was a very slightly increased rate of multiple myelomas and lymphomas, um, which are two different kinds of uh, cancer, one of um, bone cells and one of the blood. Is that accurate to say, multiple myelomas, blood cells? Yeah. Yeah, it's like those little squishy things in your neck that you notice when you get a cold. Yeah. Um, so they had to kind of torture the data to get this, uh, but when they sorted it out by biological sex, they found that there was a modest um, increase, but it really wasn't convincing for a meaningful practical effect. Okay. Um, and then a 2015 review by Kirkland and Gatehouse shows that there's no real evidence for cell damage from aspartame in organisms. Mm. Um, when they did some cell culture studies in Petri dishes, they found that there was a little bit of damage, but any time they put it in an animal or human model, uh, there just wasn't much there. So really where we're sitting right now is that's probably the least uh, of your concerns. I mean, if you want to eliminate it for other reasons, then it's possible you might be eliminating some cellular damage, but there's not a lot to say like, oh Lord, we're uh, stumbling upon the next nicotine or the next you know, tobacco here. That's good to know. When I was younger, I totally avoided diet soda because I was just thinking about cancer risks. Yeah. Well, as you'll find out, you probably made the uh, right decision, even if it was for um, different reasons. Um, let's see. So we should just spread rumors for the good of public health, you think? Yes. Okay. Um, this just in. Uh, racism causes, um, let's say, violent diarrhea and male pattern baldness mm -hmm. all right so <laughs> some other things i wanted to talk about um we've got uh this article by sharon fowler that was a really nice review that was put together in 2016 and um it talks about how Animal studies and human studies are sort of coming together to tell a pretty convincing story about what um, these artificial sweeteners are doing to metabolism. Um, and they found that chronic exposure to uh, low-calorie sweeteners, and this uh, talks about saccharin, sucralose, acesulfame, potassium, um, and aspartame, have shown an increase in food consumption, a decrease in postprandial thermogenesis, which is the amount of heat that an animal is kicking off after they eat. And that would be a good thing um, because if you eat food and you're burning it off, you would expect your body temperature to actually go up and literally burn off that energy. But these calorie, low-calorie sweeteners were associated with lower levels of that. That's so scary. So you're chilling out in all the wrong ways. Um, also, increased weight gain, greater percentage body fat, um, decrease in GLP-1 release during glucose tolerance testing. Um, What's that? That is glucagon-like peptide, um, which is... Um, it's a molecule that kind of tells your uh, body to mobilize uh, fat, and it's a little bit of like a metabolic gas pedal to probably oversimplify. Okay. Uh, so it 
it's called glucagon like glucagon can be broadly thought of as like the opposite of um, insulin in terms of deciding to drive toward a put all the energy away versus use all the energy up um, okay and glucagon's the one that says use the energy yes okay glucagon as in all the glucose needs to be gone right <laughs> yeah and um, it also found that there was significantly greater fasting glucose, and that's bad. You don't want sugar hanging out in your blood. Um, it can crystallize um, on your cells and cause all sorts of mischief. And then it also found that there was just more glucose hanging out during the glucose testing and hyperinsulinemia. And again, having too much insulin is sort of the core of um, how type 2 diabetes works. You've got too much insulin, your body stops reacting to it, um, Insulin is a driver of um, kind of this rest and digest. Let's put the energy away for later. We might need this in our fat cells, so let's go ahead and make everyone overweight, kind of um, that sort of thing. So that's what they found in animals. And then they uh, found in uh, humans that frequent use of diet beverages was prospectively, that means they started the study and then watched people uh, going forward, uh, it was increased with long-term risk of cardiometabolic conditions, including uh, hypertension, that's high blood pressure, metabolic syndrome, which I talked about a little bit earlier. Um, it's sort of the cluster of bad things that happen when you are living kind of the stereotypical sedentary uh, obesity life. Um, also diabetes, uh, depression, kidney dysfunction, heart attack, and stroke. And uh, it was associated with both mortality from heart and vascular factors and total mortality. And they did try and look at all the, uh, the other confounders about lifestyle and okay. these kinds of things. So to recap, in animals, it basically saw like the science of how it basically makes you pack away all this sugar and energy to store it as fat and not burn it. And then in humans, they found that it's linked to like all the badness in terms of diseases. Yeah, that's what this paper is discussing. Now, there are counterpoints out there. It was funny. I did find an article that was, um, it was a letter in response to one of these papers <laughs> that was written. Um, it was like, oh, they misinterpreted all this data. And then at the <laughs> bottom, they're like, I am on the board of an organization that represents all the diet soda companies. And I was like, oh, oh okay. how convenient yeah. for you. Um, but at any rate, <laughs> I will say that this is not without controversy. And the other thing to keep in mind is remember all those saccharin studies ended up being specific to rodents. So it is important to ask the question of which of these animal factors are really translating over to humans. Okay. Um, so that's that. Um, and yeah, this paper asks, obesity has gotten so much worse since 1980. I mean, is this happening uh, just in spite of low-calorie sweeteners? Would it have happened anyway? Um, would they have been even worse if there weren't low-calorie sweeteners around? Um, or is the obesity epidemic actually being fueled in part by these products? 
Um, that sounds so nefarious and scary. Yeah. And again, I really don't think that I'm not going to take like the evil corporation angle yeah. here. And I really don't think that anybody who designed these was really trying to screw people over. Yeah. But it is a little bit spooky what the data is beginning to show. Um, the, the central idea that's coming out of the animal studies is this. The uncoupling of the sweet taste and its caloric consequences by low-calorie sweeteners messes with an animal's ability to predict what the sweet taste means to the body's metabolism. So um, when your brain gets this information about sweetness and um, it doesn't pan out the way your brain originally thinks, then the brain has to adjust. Oh my gosh, mind blown. Yeah. So it impairs the animal's ability to respond appropriately to sweet tasting foods, right? So um, they did a lot of studies in here, and I'm not going to go into great, great detail, um, but I encourage you to read the paper, and that'll all be in the, the show notes. But they found that when they gave rats access to um, sugar or artificial sweeteners, what they found at the end of the day was that um, exposure to artificial sweeteners essentially blunted their response to real sugars. Um, like they'd let them have access to um, a caloric snack mm -hmm. and then afterward they'd get to go back to their regular food and they found that post-snack chow intake um, in the group that was exposed for a while to artificial sweeteners was quadruple that of the group that was still associating sugar with um, a certain amount of energy. Wow. So you just completely lose your gauge of how many calories you're taking in. Yeah. My take from this is that the brain uses a lot of different inputs to figure out when to stop. I mean, there's uh -huh. stomach stretch receptors and all that jazz. There's probably a certain amount of sensation of actually how much um, your like energy level is affected immediately. Uh -huh. But it does, I think, use the sweet taste as one of those indicators, and the evidence seems to be that um, when you lose that gauge when sweet taste stops telling your brain about calories, then it's flying blind. It's like losing one of your instruments on an airplane. Oh no. Um, and so, yeah, these studies found that, um, animals, uh, th these are sprague dolly rats, which is, uh, one of the really commonly used rat models. Mm -hmm. They found that when they had a sweet yogurt diet, that was artificially sweetened, so it didn't tell you anything about the calories. They ate a lot more total calories, gained more body weight, had greater uh, overall body fat compared to um, a group that had access to regular sugar-sweetened yogurt. Um, and they found uh, there are a number of similar studies that found significantly greater weight gain uh, in this group. That's crazy because I feel like that's one of the big motivations for people to eat food with artificial sweeteners, just the fact that they, you know, feel like they can cut down on calories. Yeah. And I mean, it definitely makes sense on paper yeah. uh, that, you know, you eat fewer calories, 
you gain less weight. But what this is finding is that there's a lot of appetite stimulation. So it may very well be that with sufficient willpower, uh-huh. you could overcome it, but yeah. it just becomes a lot more of an uphill battle. That's um, interesting. And as an aside, since I started doing the research for this um, podcast, I did stop drinking uh, diet pop, uh-huh. and it's been about two weeks now. And I do think that my diet has, like, my appetite has gone down. Interesting. And I know that's like an N of one. Yeah. And I'm also motivated to justify all the reading I just did. <laughs> but it is it is interesting, and I encourage those of you out there who. Um, are interested in losing weight to at least give it a shot for a couple weeks and see if it works for you. Um, but let's see. Related, still going through this Fowler paper, the uh, another study by Abu Donia and uh, colleagues looked at how Splenda, the sucralose, affected weight change in, um, again, Sprague dolly rats. They found at the end of 24 weeks the weight gain levels in all the Splenda-exposed rats were higher than those who were just exposed to water, and um, there were statistically significant differences in the um, 100 and 500 um, milligram per kilogram per day groups. So that's just that's the low Splenda and the moderate Splenda. Um, and just again and again, these studies keep finding increased weight gain in these animal models. Um, Interestingly, they found increased weight gain even when there was no difference in food intake. So again, I think that goes what? goes back to the idea that it's spiking insulin, and insulin oh. is insulin is a hey, let's pack this away signal. So it's actually probably taking the same energy and diverting it to fat storage instead of burning energy. Interesting. So it's affecting your brain's ability to decide when you're full and how much you should eat, but it's also affecting just the way the body stores food? Yes, and I think that those are in some sense one and the same. you got okay. kind of like a neuroendocrine axis, right? So the mm-hmm. brain is um, kicking out the uh, hormones that are driving okay. the insulin response. And I confess I'm slightly rusty on the specifics, but maybe we can get an expert in here soon. <laughs> Cody's going to the world of psychiatry. He's not going to be talking about diabetes with anyone. Yeah. Although eating disorders are squarely in my domain, so That's I should true. probably learn this stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, so those are those things. Um, they've also found that other common components of the American diet are um, synergistic, so... Um, things like trans fatty acids and monosodium glutamate when they were eaten in animal models in conjunction with the low calorie sweeteners, they led to more dramatic uh, changes. Um, For example, they uh, had a series of mice that ate either um, trans fatty acids or trans fatty acids with MSG and with aspartame. And they found that mice that had the aspartame, the MSG, and the trans fatty acids developed 55% more visceral adipose tissue. Um, So that's deep fat inside the muscle where it does the most damage. Um, And they were 
furthermore, striking alterations in gene transcription. So mm. it's affecting their metabolism at a pretty profound level. Um, so this is pretty diabolical stuff. So it's affecting like the genes that are being expressed in that person? Yes. During their lifetime? As long as you give mice personhood. Oh, but yeah, yes. it, it probably does happen to um, humans as well is okay. what they're, they're hopefully crazy. trying to say. Um, but yeah, there's the animal data is, is strikingly strong. They're also finding insulin levels that were double those in a plain water group when they were exposed to non-nutritive sweeteners. That's again in mice. Wow. Um, they found that um, fasting glucose levels were 1.6 times higher and insulin sensitivity was decreased in animals or exposed to uh, aspartame alone. And yeah. So there's more storage of um, energy and there's also more circulating glucose in the blood. Yes. And um, I know we didn't, we haven't necessarily done a deep dive Mm -hmm. into diabetes, but Mm -hmm. one of the major ways that diabetics experience health consequences is having that um, sugar in the blood leads to all sorts of problems. And I shouldn't steal your thunder. This is your um, (laughs) domain, Ren. But but yeah, that is really interesting because that makes me think about, number one, how... You know, I have a couple questions in my mind. Is are artificial sweeteners kind of making your body kind of mimic what it, things would be like if you had diabetes and you did have higher blood sugars? And then also, question: Is it double badness if you have diabetes and you're drinking artificial sweeteners? Yeah, that's a good question. And what they have found in human studies is that the people who already have obesity seem to be the the ones that suffer the most from uh, these diet beverages, which may have a lot to do with the fact that their metabolism is already a little bit off kilter because um, one's body is already responding to um, more caloric intake and more adipose tissue firing off all these signals saying like, hey, this is great. We want to keep being fat cells so that you're great in a situation of famine. And we know absolutely nothing about cultural <laughs> norms or, um, you know, what's going on with, with the health consequences of having too many of us. Oh, those silly fat cells. They're so yeah. ignorant. They're not great. <laughs> so I don't want to spend way too much time on this paper, but it was just a really cool paper. I mean, this is crazy. It's like, like truth after truth after truth. Yeah. Um, so what they talk about on uh, human studies here, uh, there was uh, one from Stellman and Garfinkel that found that saccharin users gained significantly more weight uh, compared to people who did not use saccharin, and they were more likely to gain 10 pounds or more during the one-year follow-up and were more likely to gain more than 16% of their original weight during that one year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, uh, another one of the major studies that uh, came up was this San Antonio Heart Study, or SAS, um, and and they found that um, this was done in 1979 to 1988 with 3,465 people, and they 
um, did baseline exams during that period and then got them for follow-up seven to eight years later. Wow. They looked at how artificially sweetened beverages that included diet soda, artificially sweetened coffee, and artificially sweetened tea, Mm -hmm. um, how that affected weight gain. They found that people who had more than 22 servings a week of um, artificial sweetened beverages had 78% greater gains in body mass index than people who didn't use artificial sweeteners at all. And that was adjusted for initial baseline BMI and other covariates. Cody, did they quantify those gains? Like, you know how in studies, like, they could say 78%, but it might mean, like, you gain, like, 0.78 of a pound versus, you know, 0.2 or whatever. Um, Did they have an estimate of how many pounds that was? It's probably in the original SAS paper, but reading off the review, that information is not available. Um, And let's see, they also found that the risk of becoming overweight or obese um, among the 1,250 that started out at normal weight was 93% higher um, among those in the fourth quartile of artificial sweeteners. Wow. So that's like a huge weight gain. Yeah. Well, it's a huge risk. Right. Um, And they might just be going, we don't know how many of those were like just a hair below overweight. Okay. So one always must be a little skeptical. Um, One of, it was the um, the head of neurosurgery at Penn State, Dr. Harbaugh, uh, has uh, often said, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess. <laughs> so uh, I'm pretty sure he was quoting somebody else, but I guess for the <laughs> purposes of this podcast, the uh, buck stops with him. Um, what's So they expanded on the findings from SAS um, in a follow-up study, the San Antonio Longitudinal Study of Aging, or SALSA. Oh my gosh, these are the best names. Yeah, clinical trial naming. I I think people who go into like um, public health research and clinical trials research have must have like a full course just on naming uh, trials. Totally, we might have a class on it. Um, FYI, there's this uh, really amazing database, I think of South Asians in America and seeing um, how if acculturating to sort of the Western diet from their own original diet um, affects obesity or cardiac health, and it's called the Masala Database. That is amazing. That's so fun. That is perfect. Um, so with the, the SALSA study, they had a mean follow-up of 9.4 years, and they found a modest positive trend between diet soda use and the longitudinal BMI gain. Ooh, okay. Um, and they found what they call a dramatic positive dose response curve between diet soda and the beginning, or at the beginning of each follow-up interval, and long-term change in waist circumference. Ooh. Which, um, as we get deeper into um, metabolic topics, waist circumference is more important than BMI since body weight is something that can be confounded by a lot of other factors. Um, They found that those who consume diet sodas daily or more often had um, waist circumference gains that were almost quadruple that of non-users. Intermediate waist gains were observed in less than daily users, um, among whom waist gains were more than double those in non-users. And... um, 
They talk about how increasing abdominal obesity with aging is associated with increased visceral fat, which is associated with increased inflammation, cardiometabolic risk, and risk of type 2 diabetes, depression, cognitive impairment, uh, incidence of coronary heart disease, and mortality. So there's a lot going on here that seems to be pretty uh, well associated with intake of um, diet pop. Um, and these are, of course, correlations. So there's a lot of talk as to, you know, is this just due to uh, other dietary habits or some other confounding factor, like a culture of people who are going into fast food restaurants more often and drinking diet pop more often mm -hmm. as a result of I that. But we'll get to some other studies that I think will clear that up somewhat. Okay. So it's the mechanisms through which low-calorie sweeteners might increase cardiometabolic problems. They said that the mechanism is beyond the scope of this particular paper, uh -huh. but biologically plausible mechanisms have been found, um, and they talk about disruption of the animal's ability to predict caloric responses to sweet taste, which we already kind of talked mm -hmm. about. Um, decreased release of GLP-1 in response to sweet tasting food. So again, it's this idea that um, when you normally eat sweet food and you're getting sugar, the GLP comes out and is like, all right, we got this sugar rush. Let's bust out some of the, let, let's use that energy uh -huh. and be high energy people. So one of the things that scares me about that is, does this in fact mean that you've got, um, energy coming in and you're not only having more of an obesity problem, but you're also facing a low energy problem because <laughs> your body's terrible. not using it. Yeah. So that's scary. And hopefully we'll, we'll find out if that's, uh, the case anecdotally pretty soon. Um, mm, so I, I guess maybe that, well, that makes me think about, you know, like the low calorie Gatorades and vitamin waters. Maybe it's not this isn't me extrapolating, but maybe it's not a good idea to drink those before a sporting event because maybe you won't have as much energy. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I will touch on some papers that speak against that in the short term. Okay. But it does sound like this might be more of a long-term change, Okay. which uh, makes a lot of sense uh, as a psychiatrist. Uh -huh. I'm thinking, for example, of the fact that antidepressants don't really do their thing for over a month. So I think a lot of things that we expose the brain to have to happen over time before they start to mess with the way the brain's operating. Interesting. But uh, they also talk about... Um, how these could affect up and down regulation of gene transcription and adipose tissue. I mean, that makes sense. You're screwing with the, um, I mean, the, the whole point of a fat cell is to try and figure out when to store energy and we're giving it bad information, uh, by, makes sense. by eating or drinking things that aren't what they purport to be from a biological standpoint. Um, I also talk about disruption of neurometabolic function in the hippocampus, uh, altered reward processing of sweet taste, and adverse impacts on the gut microbiota. Now, I'm interested in how uh, that specifically would work, but I think that that's going to deserve its own episode at some point because the idea of gut populations affecting obesity is a very big subject. Yeah, yeah. There's, I feel like there's so much research on 
the different bacteria that live in the gut ecosystem and what they do for us. Yeah, and um, that's actually something uh, when we get to the fasting episode that'll be interesting because this idea is that the the dudes that are chilling out in our guts are basically their own organ. I mean, there's a huge, huge population of bacteria in there, and the specific species that we get seem to have a huge effect on how we deal with food and, more importantly, how we deal with the stuff that we try to eat as food that gets down there and doesn't actually provide us with any uh, energy because that then becomes the bacteria's food. Ooh, that is really interesting. I'm excited for that episode now. I think it's going to be pretty interesting. So... Big shout out to Sharon P.G. Fowler at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio um, because she wrote a pretty banging article. Yeah, that was amazing. So much food for thought. Yeah. So a couple other things I wanted to touch on. Um, We've got uh, the CHOICE trial uh, by Tate and colleagues in 2012. That was a randomized controlled trial, which... Uh, for those of you unfamiliar, is one of the strongest experimental designs. You start with a uh, group of people and you sort them blindly into groups, and this allows you to say a little bit more about causation. So the uh, in the CHOICE trial, again, they uh, made a, a big acronym, and I, I did neglect to put in what, the, what it stood for, but that's fine. They replaced caloric beverages with non-caloric beverages, either diet, drinks, or water. And this led to a decrease in weight and waist circumference and systolic blood pressure in six months, all good things. However, they found that weight loss was 2.5 pounds on average in the diet beverages group and two pounds in the um, water group. So they actually lost more weight in the diet beverages group and a control group that just made whatever dietary changes they wanted, they lost 1.76 pounds. However... Uh, On statistical analysis, there was no difference between any of those numbers. Um, What they found, interestingly, and I think this really starts to agree with what the Fowler paper uh, said, is that the water group showed a reduction in fasting glucose and improved hydration, and that wasn't seen in the other two groups. Mm. And participants in the... um, in either of the beverage replacement conditions were twice as likely to have lost 5% of their body weight as compared to the do-whatever-you-want-to-lose-weight group. Um, So this shows that diet beverages probably are better than nothing, um, but water has significant benefits uh, in terms of the um, sugar processing based on this. That makes sense. And another study of uh, Japanese men, (laughs) and I definitely should pull up the authors here. That's uh, Sakurai and colleagues uh, in the European Journal of Nutrition in 2014. Um, Also, Cody has like 100 tabs open at once. Um, It's very concerning to me. This is, uh, I'm going for the highly disorganized... Um, hope to be mistaken for an eccentric genius vibe. (laughs) Um, Okay. I think I've got the eccentric part down. (laughs) I've got a few decades to try and get the genius part down. (laughs) Um, So this study found that the sugar-sweetened beverage consumption 
did not lead to a significantly increased risk of diabetes after adjusting for age, BMI, family history, dietary, and other lifestyle factors. Now, this is the sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. Okay. Conversely, people who drank more than one diet drink a week, one a week, that's nothing, had an increased risk of developing diabetes. And that was what we call a hazard ratio of 1.7. For those of you who uh, like to get into the statistics, the 95% confidence interval was 1.13 to 2.55, which, if we can take a quick aside... That means that they were 95% sure that it leads to at least um, a modest 13% increase in risk all the way to a 155% increase in risk if I'm doing the mental math right. But basically they were pretty sure that this was doing at least some harm. That's crazy. Just one a week? I feel like I drink one a week and I'm trying not to. (laughs) Yeah. So according to this, it does not take much to F with your system. Wow. If you're Japanese. (laughs) That's true. Important caveat. It's possible that Japan was the only place they could find people who didn't drink one a week. I know. That's probably true. Um. Okay, and then this 2017 randomized controlled trial, it was went on for 24 weeks. This is by uh, Majd and colleagues. They looked at whether replacing diet beverages with water affected overweight or obese women who were already on a hypoenergetic diet, so they were on calorie restriction. I thought this was a really good question because it gets to, okay, we know that diet beverages are probably better than... Um, regular sugar-sweetened beverages in some ways since you're not getting those liquid calories. All right, I get that. Um, But how much better is water, right? So they had 81 women. The control group had a diet beverage every day, every weekday, five days a week after lunch. The experiment group used water instead. The water group lost 6.4 kilograms, uh, which is more than... Um, 13 pounds, and the diet beverages group lost 5.25 kilograms, which is somewhere around um, 11-ish pounds, and there were greater decreases in fasting glucose, uh, fasting insulin, something called HOMAIR, which is a, it's a measure of insulin resistance, which Again, going back to this whole diabetes thing, insulin resistance is bad. It's kind of an index of how uh, your body is used to having too much insulin, so it doesn't do what it's normally supposed to with that information, and there's extra insulin floating around, and your body is not uh, responding to this pack-away signal as it should. How, what was the time frame for that study? Like, over how much time did they lose um, the... 24 weeks, it says. 20, that's like half a year? Yeah, okay. so, yeah, a year is 56 weeks, right? So that's roughly six months, give or take. Okay. I'm not good at this on-the-spot math. <laughs> <laughs> good thing we're not mathematicians. Yeah, this is why I went into medicine, right? Psychiatry, we only have to do, like, a couple of math, not very many. <laughs> Wow. So I guess what I'm getting from this is, you know, kind of consistent with what Fowler was telling us that the, well, so it sounds like using um, artificial sweetened beverages can still be part of a weight loss plan, Mm -hmm. but 
the other benefits come from not drinking artificial sweeteners, like all of the metabolic yeah. things that we've been talking about. Yeah, and it might very well be, like, there's not really an index here of um, discomfort and craving and these kinds of things. I would uh-huh. not be surprised if the women placed in the diet beverages group actually had to work a lot harder mentally to pull that off. Got it. I mean, they may have already been really motivated um, and they may have been busting their butts to lose that mm-hmm. 5.25 kilograms. Okay. Um, but that, that's an interesting question I had was, did the, um, did the water group deal with less appetite stimulation then and have an easier time of it that way? Okay. Um, but that being said, so they found that those measures were affected, uh, in terms of the, the sugar metabolism. Okay. They also found, uh, greater decreases in two-hour postprandial glucose, um, just another index of how the body's processing sugar. Uh, There was no significant change in the effect on waist circumference, lipid profile, or hemoglobin A1C. So again, this paints a picture of you certainly can get away with using diet drinks as part of your weight loss strategy, but you may be partially, at least subtly, hosing yourself on your um, sugar metabolism, which may have health consequences down the way. Got it. Um, and trying to get at this idea of whether there's overall um, diet quality changes, mm-hmm. a couple of studies I looked into found that this seems to be cultural. A British study by Gibson and colleagues done in 2016 found that people who were drinking low-calorie beverages, including diet soda or diet pop, as I prefer to call it, <laughs> tend to have higher diet quality and there wasn't evidence of overcompensating with other sweet foods. Uh, however, Pierness and colleagues found the opposite in the United States in 2014 and found that low-calorie beverages were associated with lower diet quality. So um, it may have a lot to do with just the prevailing attitudes and who the people are who show up to purchase the, um, the diet pop and maybe what else is available in the, those stores. Um, so... That's most of what I had. I wanted to look into uh, stevia, but things are really a lot less clear there, and I think I'm going to have to dive more into that in a future episode. I think that from a neurologic standpoint, it's still a non-nutritive molecule that um, is going to tell the brain that we're getting calories when we're not. So it would stand to reason that all these things are going to, to happen this way. Got it. Um, but there were a bunch of other studies out there looking at specific things that Stevia was doing metabolically, and I did not feel like I had a complete grasp of that yet. So if you're going to reach for one, I can't say that Stevia is going to be any better or worse, but it's unlikely to be worse based okay. on what I know so far. Um, and... A couple of just quick things. There were two studies that found that in the very short term, I found two studies that told us a little bit more about how artificial sweeteners affect uh, metabolism in the short term. Uh, This one by uh, Tay and colleagues in the International Journal of Obesity in 2017 looked at how artificial sweeteners uh, affected postprandial glucose, insulin, and energy intake. And what they found was that calorie-free beverages 
um, don't affect overall intake and that postprandial glucose and insulin were similar uh, between the calorie-free beverages and the sucrose-sweetened beverage folks. And the uh, study by Anton and colleagues looked at how stevia, aspartame, and sucrose affected food intake, um, satiety, and postprandial glucose and insulin levels. Um, and they found that people do not compensate by eating more at lunch or at dinner, and they had similar satiety levels um, compared to the uh, higher-calorie sucrose preload. So at least in these experimental designs, they were not seeing that this appetite stimulation was occurring. That's, that's interesting, and it kind of makes me think of something which I'm not sure if it um, would hold or not, but maybe um, this means that if it's not so bad in the short term, maybe you can use um, artificially sweetened beverages as a kind of bridge to a healthy lifestyle. So if maybe you're drinking um, you know, a regular soda every day and you're trying to um, you know, live healthier than maybe switching to a diet soda every day with the ultimate goal of um, you know, um, switching to water as your preferred beverage it could be a strategy for people. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that the way I'm trying to frame it now is thinking of it almost like a nicotine patch or nicotine gum where it's still kind of bad for you, uh-huh. but if it helps you get from point A to point B, I think it's definitely got a place. Um, and that's where, for me, I'm going to continue trying to cease the use of diet drinks and see if I can get away with water unsweetened tea, unsweetened coffee, and these kinds of things. And I think that the industry might be onto that too. I mean, everybody seems to be coming out with these seltzer waters, which I've heard. It's like (laughs) somebody whispered fruit in the next room. (laughs) I think that's pretty accurate. So we didn't explicitly get into those, but there's significantly less sweetness in there. So that's probably not a bad direction to go, especially if you're trying to wean away. Do some of the seltzer waters have artificial sweeteners in them? I'm sure some of them do, but I think the major brands, their big pitch is that they don't. Okay. Like LaCroix and like those seltzer waters, don't they just use like weird pieces of fruit rinds or something to flavor their... Yeah, I think like they drive a truck full of limes like past the building. Got it. And then they just get like a whiff of lime. Yeah. (laughs) But that's, that's my takeaway. I think try and drink, try and drink water. And the water lobby paid me nothing to say this. <laughs> so that's what you are, you... are you trying to get completely off of um, artificial sweetened sodas then? I think so. Okay. Um, I mean, maybe it's good once in a while, but I also have an obesity history, so my uh, metabolism is probably already effed. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, and that's another thing we can go into uh, in the future. I will shout out the... Uh, NIH-sponsored uh, documentary, Weight of the Nation, is super interesting, and I think it's available online for free still. Okay, cool. So that's something that uh, you healthinados, I don't know what you guys want to be called yet, uh, <laughs> might be into. Cool. I mean, I think this podcast, I, thinking about my own lifestyle change, I growing up I never drank um, artificial sweetened sodas because we would just use, you know, reg- we would drink regular sodas, and it was usually just with um, pizza, um, which was like a once a week or 
um, once every two weeks kind of thing. Um, but recently in um, residency, actually, there's we usually have sort of a selection of either water or diet sodas at lunchtime. And I found that I started drinking the diet sodas because I was like, oh, let me get a little bit of caffeine or I like that fizzy action. But now this is really making me reconsider because I, I really don't want to mess up my brain's you know sugar compass. I want to be able to really accurately gauge how many calories are in things because I feel like that could just be a, a weird downward spiral. Yeah, and I mean, anecdotally, I think I've seen the the difference in myself. I've had people point out that I just have like an unstoppable drive to eat candy. <laughs> and I think that the two are probably related because I had at one time drank uh, Diet Pop like it was my job, <laughs> as I alluded to. Like how much? Oh, like um, easily two liters wow. a day. Um, and plus energy drinks on top of that and um, always diet energy drinks. Occasionally like diet Powerade and all that, just kind of treating it like a freebie. And yeah, I think it probably did come back to, to bite me. Interesting. So do you, like anecdotally, you know, study of one, but also your feelings are very important to me. Um, do you feel like your craving for sweet things um, has changed after you cut diet sodas out of your life? I think so. And I, I think, again, I'm probably motivated also by the fact that I wanted to, to justify all of the reading <laughs> I did. But um, it certainly seems like I just don't have the urge to eat nearly as much as I used to. It's still brutal when I'm like eating pizza or yeah. eating um, like Chinese food because those are just like they go together. Yeah. But um, yeah. And now I'm really interested to hear um, what you found out about sitting and that'll be the, the big cliffhanger, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. But I mean, end of story is that sitting is way worse than all of the puny little things you found out about diet sodas because I'm just that much better at researching and finding badness. <laughs> so we're going to have to throw out all the diet pop and we're going <laughs> to have to get treadmill desks or standing desks or those weird knee chairs <laughs> or the abdominal balls. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. I know, yeah. It'll be it'll be interesting. But no, Cody, thank you for preparing this podcast. It was super interesting and I definitely didn't know a lot of the long-term effects of um, of artificial sweeteners. Yeah, I thought it was super interesting, too. Um, and I know that we're far from the first uh, source to look into this, but I think this is going to continue to be an evolving story. But I don't know how we're going to divide this yet, so we may cut this uh, outro part out if we end up just stitching the two together but let's go ahead and do our special thanks and plugging section just to be on the safe side um Kavita do you want to read it since people didn't uh, didn't get to hear you very much oh absolutely so special thanks first to our entire um humanity against disease team we have some amazing people um that have helped us set up the sound equipment so we sound so much better and cleaner we have um, an amazing sound editor, Nate, who's uh, you know going through this podcast as you you know as we speak, uh, editing, and we have um, Cody's brother who is design who designed our cover art, and then we have an amazing friend named Adam who just helped optimize all this equipment we bought that we had nothing to you know no knowledge of how to work, and then of course we have our other plugs, so. 
If you want to know more about Humanity Against Disease or if you want to know more about the specific podcast and the papers that we talked about, just uh, join us at humanityagainstdisease.com. You can find all that info um, on the website. The next thing is we sell some merch. We sell some delightful stickers, really soft, fuzzy t-shirts, and caps, which are very, um, I would say, very minimalist and classy. Uh, those can be found at humanityagainstdisease.bigcartel.com, which is kind of an intimidating website name, and I'm excited about that. And then, of course, um, if you want to uh, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, we'd love to hear your thoughts, any questions you have, or ideas for future podcasts. So our Twitter handle is at AgainstDisease, and then our Facebook um do you just type this into Facebook, Cody? Yeah, it's like just an ID thing. Okay, so you type in at humanity, humanity Against Disease. Yeah. And one more plug I want to throw out there. For those of you in the Baltimore area, there is going to be a Humanity Against Disease fundraiser in the form of a uh, Tai Chi workshop designed for healthcare professionals, whether you are a doctor, a resident, a nurse, a paramedic, uh, an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, uh, basically anybody who's in a position to try and help people with their health. We're trying to teach Tai Chi moving mindfulness meditation and resilience training to people who would like to become future instructors to their patients or to teach their own classes. And it is a simplified Tai Chi method that is designed for PTSD and anxiety conditions that we are going to be uh, properly vetting and testing. But it is designed by Sifu Dan Jones, who is my Tai Chi instructor that I've known since I was in high school. He's got 38 years of experience um, and he, he will be coming and uh, running the workshop. It is currently slated for December 8th and 9th. You can come on just Saturday, or you can come on Saturday and Sunday for the full experience. And those tickets are going to be available at the uh, Big Cartel website, and there will be more announcements on our Twitter and Facebook. So those of you who have an interest in uh, supporting us or learning some valuable moving mindfulness techniques or both, uh, be sure to check that out. All right. Um, Cody and Kavita signing out. We had so much fun recording this podcast and we look forward to our next one on sitting, coming to a podcast app near you. Blow it up. Bam. <laughs>